hppodcraft.com. Welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and with us is Andrew Lehman. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Andrew, is, of course, uh, was our reader last week on uh, The Yellow Sign, which was, was excellent. Thank you so much. Loved the Cockney. Very glad to be uh, back in the saddle. I'm looking forward to doing more. This is going to be kind of a new segment that I, I would like to have as a regular, as long as Andrew's up for it, called the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's Time Machine. That's right. As many of you know, Andrew is the founding member of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and as such, has a keen interest in history, especially as it pertains to these literary topics. And uh, we've asked him, and actually he kind of volunteered, to go through some of the things that were going on in literature in the 1890s, specifically some of the things that surround the stories that we've been talking about in The King in Yellow. I thought it'd be fun to sort of look back at, at the time period where the stories were written. I mean, we're, one of the things we love at HPLHS is the whole 1920s, 30s milieu, and in this case, 1890s milieu, in which these stories were created. So it's always fun to get a little more look at what was going on at the time. Okay, now I'm going to bring this up right away. When we're talking about the repair of reputations, there was a lot of weird stuff that was mentioned in the first of it. Things like the the Hawaiian-Cuban crisis or something like that. Do you know what that is about? The Hawaii, Cuba, and Samoa, which he mentions in that opening paragraph, were all very much in the news in the 1890s when Chambers was writing the story. Up until the 1890s, Hawaii had always been a sovereign, independent nation of its own with a a royal family. It was ruled by kings and queens. But in 1893, the last monarch of Hawaii, uh, Queen Liliuokalani, was deposed in a a coup d'etat which was organized mostly by American business interests who had been in Hawaii for a long, long time. Missionaries came to Hawaii. They're planting sugar and pineapple and various other things in Hawaii. And the queen wanted to um, rewrite a new constitution, which would have given more power to the native population. How could she? I know. Imagine <laughs> that. And more power to you know the monarchy and less power to these rich guys from America and Europe. So they basically overthrew the government and the U.S. Marines came in and basically, yeah, basically America took over Hawaii in 1893. They rewrote a new constitution, which really disenfranchised a lot of the non-white European people who lived in Hawaii. And by 1898, Hawaii was annexed to the United States and, of course, eventually became a state and all that jazz. Well, what about Cuba then? Cuba has long been a very turbulent place because it, it had its own native population, but it was colonized by the Spanish, but it's next door to the United States. So there's always been a lot of different people jockeying for power in Cuba. There had been a lot of attempts to for Cuba to gain its independence. There was one war that started in 1868. There was another one that started in 1879. In 1895, Uh, was yet another, the beginning of yet another war for Cuban independence, which ultimately turned into the Spanish-American War and ultimately ended in independence for Cuba. But right when Chambers was writing the stories that are in The King in Yellow, there were a lot of people in the United States who really wanted Cuba to break away from Spain. There was the Hearst Papers, you know, yellow journalism. A lot of that was about stoking the move for Cuban independence. So Cuba was very much in the news in the early 1890s. And there were a lot of Americans who really thought that Cuba should be liberated from Spain. 
yellow journalism? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I did set you up for that one, didn't I? <laughs> yellow journalism was sort of the tabloid journalism, great big scare headlines and sensationalist stories and appeals to emotion and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of pioneered by Hearst and Pulitzer. It was, you know, they were trying to jack up circulation, so they would publish the most sensational stories they could. But yellow journalism as a term didn't really come about until after The King in Yellow was written. It was, they called it yellow journalism because there was a comic strip called The Yellow Kid that was published in both the Hearst and the Pulitzer newspapers. That comic book, The Yellow Kid, didn't start until 1895. It's hard to imagine that Chambers, yellow journalism just, I mean, it existed, but it wasn't called yellow journalism until until after 1895. Why yellow? Why is yellow the weird, creepy color? Yellow is, there's there's actually a color called King's Yellow. It's a pigment that has been used in oil painting and fine arts for centuries. It comes from a a, a mineral called orpiment, which is a arsenic sulfide mineral uh, it used to be a big item in, of trade in, during the Roman Empire. It was rare. It's, it's formed in volcanoes. I mean, it's hard to get. It was also used in alchemy because it was this bright, vivid yellow. And alchemists like things that are yellow because they think it's easier to turn yellow things into gold. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Things that are, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of alchemy that just sort of operates on that kind of level. Orpiment is this incredibly toxic mineral that was prized for its yellow color and was turned into a pigment called King's Yellow. There have been a lot of polls, and yellow is nobody's favorite color, it turns out. You can look at it from a perspective where it speaks of rot. It's got that kind of decrepitude to it. But then it's also, since it is related to gold, it's got this decadent flavoring. It's very eye-catching. It's very... Well, as far as eye-catching goes, there have been studies which, which indicate that yellow is the most easily seen color. That's why school buses and taxis are yellow. Hmm. That's why yellow is used as a, you know, a safety color, a warning color. That's why a lot of pulp magazine editors really liked all their cover illustrations to include a lot of yellow because they really jump off the newsstand. You really, right. it's, yellow is a very eye-catching color. Which makes me think about the yellow book, right? Which was the uh, the, the yeah. literary journal. Of there the was a literary journal in the 1890s called the Yellow Book. It was a literary journal that included illustrations and poetry and short fiction and various other things. Aubrey Beardsley was one of the illustrators who published work in it, and Aubrey Beardsley was also the guy who did the illustrations for Oscar Wilde's Salome in the early 1890s. Even though I don't think Oscar Wilde ever actually published anything in the Yellow Book. No. H.G. Wells did when he was very young, I believe. Um, Henry James. And it was it was a sexy, you know, literary place to have your work published. Do you think there's any specific reason why Robert Chambers went with this color Besides maybe well, the yellow wallpaper and... One other yellow reference that it did occur to me was there's a figure from Chinese history called the Yellow Emperor, who was this legendary Chinese emperor from like 3000 BC, who was regarded as the father of Chinese civilization. He was reputed to be a sorcerer and a magician and an inventor and this just super powerful Lord of the Underworld, cosmic ruler type guy. Now, I don't have any idea whether Robert Chambers knew about the Yellow Emperor, but yellow is a color that's associated with royalty and has been for a very long time. Yellow is also in the classic system of humors. Yellow is associated with collar, which is bile. People who are of choleric temperament 
are usually thought of as being very ambitious, rulers are often choleric. So yellow is a color that's associated with powerful, ambitious people who are cutthroat. The people who are of a choleric temperament are also known for being mentally unstable, you know, manic, lots of mood swings, super emotional, super ambitious, potentially dangerous people to know and be around. Robert Chambers wrote The King in Yellow in 1895. What was going on in America in 1895? Okay, 1895, it's the end of what's known as the Gilded Age. Um, again, gilded, yellow, gold. I mean, yellow and gold are, are colors that are associated with that particular period of history. After the Civil War, America entered this period of tremendous economic boom. The railroads were the main industry. They were building railroads left and right. They were connecting parts of the country that had never been connected before. There was this huge economic boom. And then in 18 1893, there was this huge collapse, and it was called the Panic of 1893. And basically, the economy tanked because the railroads had overbuilt. In a lot of ways, it was really a lot like the economy right now. Unemployment was estimated in the United States to be as high as 18%. Wow. Politically, it was a lot like it is now. This was also a time when the American monetary system was still based on actual gold. Gold standard. Yeah, there were a lot of people who wanted to put silver into the mix. And I don't know if you all are familiar with uh, William Jennings Bryan, the famous cross of gold speech, but that was delivered at the Democratic Convention of 1896. It was uh, a terrible depression. It was the worst depression that America had ever faced up to the time was right when Chambers was writing all this. So a lot of his remarks in the opening of Repair of Reputations about excluding foreign-born Jews and the, the new Negro state of Suwannee, yeah. all that stuff is lifted right out of the news and the politics of the time. There was a lot of new immigration coming to the United States. Ellis Island was established as a processing center for new immigrants in 1892, I think. A lot of the new immigrants who were coming at the time were poor rural folks from Southern and Eastern Europe. They weren't high-class white Europeans who were coming. They were poor people who were coming, many of them with no intention of going back, especially Jews at the time, because the Jews were being driven out of their homes in Europe. So when they immigrated to the United States, it was to stay. And that made a lot of people very, very nervous, which is why there were, you know, movements to limit the amount of Jews who could come into the United States. <laughs> Similarly with Asians, there were a lot of people who, uh, because they the, the railroad magnates had hired so much Chinese labor to build the railroads, right. because they seemed so foreign and because they worked so cheaply, a lot of people saw the Chinese as a terrible, terrible threat. Right. So there were a lot of movements to limit the amount of Asians who could emigrate. That's how come there's a Chinatown in every big city because right. the Chinese weren't allowed to live wherever they wanted. They sort of had to form their own little enclaves, which turned into a Chinatown everywhere. So that's why all big cities have a Chinatown. So there was a lot of immigration. There was a lot of economic uncertainty. It was regarded as like the lowest point of race relations in the United States. The South was officially segregated. Jim Crow was law. There was a lot of lynchings. The idea of an independent Negro state of Suwannee is something that was in the air right. when <laughs> Chambers was, was writing all this stuff in the 1890s. Other things in that first paragraph of Repair of Reputations that we may have missed when we were... I meant to mention the Samoa thing. Samoa, for people who don't know, is this little archipelago of islands in the middle of the South Pacific. It's about 
1,800 miles north of New Zealand in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The European missionaries had, had gone there starting in the early 1800s, and by the time that Chambers was writing the story, Germans had sort of really established these plantations for cocoa and coconuts and rubber and things on the western Samoan islands, which are bigger, and American interests had set up on the smaller eastern Samoan islands. And so Germany and America were constantly in conflict over the Samoan islands. The British were in there too a little bit. There was this huge crisis called the Samoan Crisis in uh, 1889, where these German warships and American warships had a standoff in the harbor on one of the German islands, the harbor of Apia. They were pointing guns at each other for months until a cyclone came and destroyed all the warships. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what broke the standoff, was the cyclone came and wiped out all the ships. Wow. German and American tension over Samoa was very much in the news when Chambers was writing the story. So when he's thinking, what would the world be like 25 years from now in 1920, he's imagined that this has blossomed into full all-out war between Germany and America because, you know, Germany took over Samoa where we had a naval station. Yeah. So in his imaginary 1920, he's imagining that Germany and America have gone to war over Samoa. The way it actually played out was that in 1899, there was a thing called the Tripartite Convention where Germany, America, and the United Kingdom all sat down and decided like gentlemen how to carve up Samoa. <laughs> and uh, Germ Germany got the two big islands on the west, America got the two smaller islands on the east, and the UK just surrendered all of its claims to Samoa so that it could get other stuff from Germany later. Oh, okay. man. So for a while, there was German Samoa and American Samoa. And then I think, I'm, I'm not sure when, but either as a result of World War One or World War Two, Germany lost German Samoa. So mm -hmm. now that is now the independent nation of Samoa, and America still has American Samoa as a, as a territory. All uh, right, right, okay. Now, being that you guys are the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, I yeah. have a question for you about this period and anything spooky, creepy, or weird. <laughs> None of them are spooky or weird, but some of them are awfully cool. Okay. Uh, 1892, there is a Dutch zoologist named Antoon uh, Oudmans who published the very first book-length work on cryptozoology. It was called The Great Sea Serpent. <laughs> and it was, it was the first book-length work devoted to a single cryptozoological subject. So it was a huge, uh, elaborate study of all the sightings of sea serpents that there have ever been. There were a few other things that got their start in the early 1890s that I think uh, people were glad about. One of them is motion pictures. Oh, yeah. Motion pictures <laughs> were invented starting in, well, depending on who you ask, the 1880s. There was this guy named uh, Louis Le Prince. He was a Frenchman who lived in England and the United States. He invented a, a, a motion picture camera that had 16 lenses. And then in 1888, he developed a single lens version where he shot the very first motion pictures ever in, of all places, Leeds in the UK. Hey, yes. He had developed this working motion picture camera and he was on his way back to the UK to patent it. And then he was going to come to the United States to demonstrate it. This was in 1890. He got on the Dijon Paris Express train and never got off. He vanished without a trace. Whoa. His body was never found. His luggage was never found. No one knows what happened to Louis Le Prince. Well, I'm not surprised about his luggage. <laughs> <laughs> he, he never got off the train, and no one knows what happened to Louis Le Prince. Some people think that Thomas Edison had him bumped off. 
Whoa. Some people think that he committed suicide. Some people think that his no. family had him killed. No suicide. one knows. No way, man. He had too much going for him. It was it was Edison. Yeah, I think it was Edison. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Edison is a pretty, <laughs> pretty cutthroat guy. There were a lot of other people working on the idea of motion pictures at the time, including, of course, Edison. Edison took the credit for a camera that was invented by one of his employees, a guy named William Dixon, in 1891. It was called the Kinetograph. Those movies were watched on a like a Nickelodeon-type thing that was called a kinetoscope. Only one person at a time could watch the movie because you had to put your eyes up to right. a little right, peep yeah. show thing. Projected movies, projected on a screen for an audience to watch all at the same time, came along in 1894 with an invention called the Fantascope, invented by a guy named Charles Francis Jenkins in Indiana. And at about the same time in Paris, the Lumiere brothers were developing uh, their machine, which they called the Cinematograph, which was a camera and projector all built into one. Motion pictures got their start at exactly the same time that uh, Robert Chambers was writing The King in Yellow. Hmm. Another thing that got to start at exactly the same time, which I think will be of keen interest to podcast listeners, is radio. It was in 1893 that Nikola Tesla gave a series of lectures in the United States in which he described all the principles whereby you could transmit sound over the air. People could listen to wireless podcasts yeah. uh, to their heart's content. So all that happened in 1893. One of the lectures he gave was at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which is also mentioned in, in the rare pair of reputations. It was truly a huge global event. It, there were delegates from all these nations. They built this beautiful thing called the White City in Chicago. Oh, right. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah it, it was truly, I mean, we couldn't possibly do it justice in this little podcast, but it's definitely worth a look. It was 1893. So many things were exhibited for the first time at the World Columbian Exhibition. There was the Ferris wheel and... Students uh, recited the Pledge of Allegiance for the first time to mark the occasion of the exposition starting. I remember that. Movies were, were exhibited there. Radio was exhibited there. Breakfast cereal. First time anybody had ever had breakfast cereal. Cre oh, Cracker Jacks got this. Cracker Jacks. Yeah, cream oh. of wheat, shredded wheat, and cereal flakes all got started at this exact same time. Uh, zippers, x-rays, all these things were getting invented at the same time. Another big thing that was getting invented at this time was gasoline-powered automobiles. There were these brothers in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, the Durier brothers. They exhibited the first working gasoline-powered car in 1892 in Springfield. The first automobile race in America happened in 1895 from Chicago to Evanston. Uh, Frank Duria won the race. It took him 10 hours. His car went an average of seven and a half miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and the first car wreck happened uh, in 1896 <laughs> in New York City when some jackass driving a Duria car ran into a bicyclist and broke his leg. Uh. <laughs> Basketball was invented in 1891, also in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the very next year, I don't know if this is related, but the very next year, Lizzie Borden chopped her parents to death. <laughs> <You think> that's <laughs> Directly awesome. related to the mentioned basketball. Directly related. Uh, and one other cool thing that was invented in the 1890s that we're all glad about today is comic books. It was in 1890 that uh, the first two magazines, one was called Comic Cuts, and one was called Illustrated Chips. They were published by the Amalgamated Press in London. Those, right. were, those were the first regarded as the first comic books. They were um, kind of controversial because the publisher, this guy named uh, Alfred Harmsworth, 
was notorious for basically stealing stuff from other publications and reprinting it without permission. <laughs> something that, you know, we still are talking about today. Yeah. Magazines devoted just to comics, and they were so popular and successful that Harmsworth was able to uh, use the profits to launch the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror, wow. two tabloid newspapers that are still, still around published today. Yeah. yeah. So it was, uh, you know, the tabloid press was built on the back of uh, the comic books. What do you know? Movies, comic books, and radio all invented in the 1890s, and here we are today still enjoying the heck out of all of them. That was one hell of a decade. That, that's a lot of stuff to digest, and I think it's going to really help us enrich our experience as we read these stories that were written at the time. And there's, you know, we're going to talk about uh, the Yellow Wallpaper next, which is also from the period, but I would encourage anybody who's interested, check out, say, The Devil in the White City is a really great book about the Columbian Exposition, as well as the murder. Yeah, I mean, it's most about it's mostly about the murders that happened right. in the city at the same time but it is a great view most of those buildings were never intended to be permanent and there was a, a fire in 1894 after the fair closed that did destroy some of them and that may be the fire that chambers is talking about but some of those buildings are still standing and all of the ones that are still standing are still museums in the city of chicago the huh. the palace of fine arts is now the museum of science and industry and of course the field museum of natural history which is near and dear to my heart because i worked there for a while got its start at the World Columbian Exhibition uh, in a different building that was they built their own new permanent building in the 1920s but the museum as an institution got its start because of the World Columbian Exhibition it makes you sad I wish they were still doing I, I, I was just down in St. Louis and they had the exposition in 1904 where they uh, unveiled the incubator and that kind of thing for the first time but some of those buildings are still standing and it's just gorgeous to look at and I wish we were still building huge structures and like you know the way cities were planned was completely influenced by the way they designed the White City for that yeah. for that World's Fair and it impacted architecture and city planning forever after it has it was a major major thing speaking of city planning in the recent olympics city planning was an olympic event it was the olympics didn't used to just be about physical things it also had to, like a, a fine arts slant on it so there was all these watercolors and, and and paintings and one of them was city design really yeah, if you do a, do a search online about all the old crazy things that were olympic events it, it's very fascinating. Did they have synchronized city planning? Did they cover it? Did they cover it on NBC? I don't recall. Yeah, I, don't, I don't remember seeing that. This has been a fascinating discussion, Andrew. Thanks for coming on and My pleasure. giving us all this information. And I hope listeners enjoy this type of thing. If you do, uh, please tell your friends and neighbors to subscribe to the premium feed here at HP Podcast. Right. And just tell us what you think, too. And uh, hopefully, yeah. if you like it, we'll, we'll keep doing this stuff. We'll be on next with Supernatural Horror and Literature Part 2, right? Yes. And that's going to be yeah. to our open feed. Everybody will, will get that. And then from that, we go on to the Yellow Wallpaper. So that one will be free to all. And then we'll be back on the Yellow Wallpaper. And uh, hopefully, we'll have Andrew on again very soon. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure entirely. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed just nodding my head and saying, uh-huh, occasionally during this podcast. So, <laughs> Yeah, sorry if I talk too fast. Are you kidding? This has been the best show I've ever done. All right, well, uh, we'll be talking to you all soon. Uh, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Andrew Lehman. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!